Let's open a Bible this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to be continuing in our ongoing study of the great man of God, David's life. Uh, and if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, we want you to borrow a copy. You'll find it right on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 208, page 208 of our copy of the Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 23 in your copy. It was the spring of 1942, and things were looking pretty bad in the Pacific at that time. The Philippines were gone. Uh, the Japanese were threatening to take the Aleutians, Alaska, China, Australia, India, and who knows what else. And standing between the Japanese and all of this was simply the American Navy, which at this point was down to three aircraft carriers, a few surface ships, and some, some uh, submarines who shot torpedoes that routinely didn't work. Admiral Yamamoto of the Japanese uh, Navy decided it was time for an all-or-nothing um, move. And so what he did is he sent out the greatest sea force ever assembled in history. It consisted of more than 200 ships, including eight aircraft carriers, 11 battleships, 22 cruisers, 65 destroyers, 21 submarines, and over 700 aircraft. And their ostensible purpose was to attack Midway Island. But their real purpose was to lure the three remaining American aircraft carriers out into the open where they could destroy them. And if that were to have taken place, the entire Pacific Rim would have belonged to the Japanese. There would have been absolutely no one or nothing to stop them. Well, the battle was joined on June 4th, 1942. And realizing that he was greatly outnumbered, Admiral Race Bruins decided that he would launch every plane from all three of the American carriers, that he would send them out to the limit of their fuel capacity, and that he would keep no airplanes in reserve to defend the carriers and the rest of the fleet. He sent everything he had. And also, on a hunch, he decided that rather than waiting till 9 a.m. to launch, which is when he had planned to do it, that he should launch earlier. It was just a hunch that maybe an earlier launch would be better, and so he moved the launch up and launched every plane he had at 7 a.m. in the morning. Well, it was at this point that one of the greatest coincidences in the history of warfare took place. Because the Japanese, they had four advanced carriers that arrived at Midway Island ahead of the rest of the fleet. They had already launched an early morning strike on the island. Their planes had just returned to the carrier and been recaptured. And all four carriers had planes on their decks reloading, refueling, when the American planes popped out of the stratosphere and were on them. There were no fighter cover planes up. They were all down being refueled. The decks of these carriers were full of, of, of fuel and ordnance. They were completely caught helpless, and by the time the battle was over, all four Japanese carriers had gone to the bottom, and the war had turned in the Pacific. There's not a historian I know of who points to anything other than the Battle of Midway as the turning point of World War II in the Pacific. Now, had those American planes shown up 30 minutes before... Or had they shown up 30 minutes after they did, the way this battle went would have been very different. It's entirely possible every American plane would have been lost, that subsequently all three American carriers would have been sung, and maybe today Anheuser-Busch would be making sake instead of what they make. But... Amazing coincidence when they got there that things were the way they were. Now, today we want to talk about coincidences because in our passage, David is the beneficiary of an amazing coincidence. And here's the question we want to answer today. 
for a Christian, is there any such thing as a coincidence? For us as Christians, do things happen to us just by lucky or unlucky twists of fate? Or is there something more going on? And if so, then how should that change our life if we know that? Well, come along. Let's, we'll answer this question. Come along. Let's look at what happened to David first. First Samuel chapter 23. A little bit of background. Remember, David has gone from being big man on campus to being number one most wanted fugitive in the eyes of King Saul. Saul is pursuing him with a vengeance. And as we saw last week, David came out of hiding to help this little town called Keilah. And what happened was as soon as Saul heard about it, he made preparations to go to that town and trap David. He was ready to be on David like a dog on a T-bone. And that's when we pick up the story. Pick it up with me in verse 13. It says, so David and his men, because they heard Saul was was coming, about 600 in number, they left Keilah and they kept moving from place to place. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. And David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. And day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into Saul's hands. David left Keilah and went down into the desert of Zip. You say, Lon, where is that? That is down in the southeastern portion of Israel, down near the Dead Sea, down near the, the town of Masada, if you know where that is. And the Bible's entirely right in calling it a, a desert. It is the most rugged, the most remote, the most forsaken terrain you have ever seen in your life. And David went there and hid in the caves and in the wadis and just went all around. And Saul was looking for him. But remember, Saul didn't have reconnaissance helicopters. He didn't have U-2s and he didn't have SR-71s and he didn't have spy satellites. The only way to find David is to take your army out there and tromp around in that God-forsaken wilderness and hope you bump into him. And the Bible says that God saw to it that that didn't happen. Saul didn't bump into David. Verse 19. And the Ziphites, the people who lived in that area, went up to Saul and they said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish? Verse 20. O now king, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for handing him over to you, O king. These Ziphites come and they say, Now look, Saul, we know this area like the back of our hand. We know where David is all the time. And if you'll come down there, what we'll do is we will take the responsibility. We will put the little red uh, laser dot right between his eyeballs for you, Saul. We'll show you right where he is. We'll help you find him. Verse 21. And Saul replied and said, the Lord bless you for your concern for me. Is this hypocritical or what? I mean, here he's a, he says, the Lord bless you people for helping me find and kill an innocent man. I mean, does this seem a little oxymoronic to you to say, God bless you people for helping me do this? Anyway, let me summarize the next few verses. What happens is Saul goes down there and they begin feeding Saul intelligence data wherever David went. No matter how clever he was, no matter where he tried to find a cave or a little something where nobody knew where he was. The Ziphites kept finding him and kept telling Saul where he was. So Saul was hot on his trail no matter where he went. We could summarize these verses like this. David had some Ziphite friends. Their hearts were cold as snow, and everywhere that David went, his friends were sure to know. And to tell Saul. Well, that was Mary Had a Little Lamb. You all knew that, right? Okay, just wanted to be sure. Well, verse 26. 
And Saul was going along one side of a mountain and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. And as Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men were closing in and they were ready to capture him. This is happening because of the great intelligence data that these Ziphites were feeding Saul. Saul was able to outflank David. He was able to surround David. And now he is within sight of David and he's ready to spring this trap and he's going to catch David. David was a garner, friends. David was a dead duck. And I want to make sure that we all understand what's happening here. This was not just a casual game of cat and mouse that's being played here. This was a very deadly game. Saul has already killed the high priest of Israel. He's already killed 84 other innocent priests and their wives and their children in his search for David. And, and David knew. If he got, if Saul gets his hands on him, David knew that, and we need to make sure we understand that David is a dead man. Saul is going to cut his head off. He's going to take his head back to his palace. He's going to put it in a plexiglass display case and he's going to stick it right on his, his bookshelf. He's going to kill this guy. This is not a game. And the trap is about to shut. David is about to be caught. Saul's within sight of him. Now watch. Verse 27, and right at that moment, a messenger came to Saul and said, Saul, come quickly. The Philistines are raiding the land. Now, we don't know what kind of raid this was. We don't know where they were. We don't know why it was so urgent that he left. But it was very urgent because there is no way in the world Saul with David right on his fingertips. There is no way that man would have left there unless there was something very serious happening with this invasion by the Philistines. So the next verse says, then Saul, verse 28, broke off his pursuit of David and he went to meet this Philistine menace. And this is why they call this place Selah Hamamlakot, which in Hebrew means the, the, the rock or the place of slipperiness, because this is the place where David slipped away from, right out of the grasp of King Saul. So they call it the place or the rock of slipperiness. And it says David went from there and he left. He got out of Dodge, folks. He says, this is not a healthy place for me to be. He got out of Dodge and went and lived north of there near a place called En Gedi. Now, that's the end of our passage, but it leads us to ask the really important question. And you know what that is. What is it? So what? So what? Okay, Lon, wonderful. I'm glad David got away. You know, great story. Appreciate you telling us the story. But so what? I mean, this makes no difference to my life. I'm going out tomorrow to face a tough world. What difference does this make? Well, I think it makes a lot of difference. I think there's a great biblical truth on display here. Let me tell you what it is. When you look at this situation, it's easy to find yourself saying, wow, was David a lucky puppy or what? I mean, right at the moment. What a coincidence. Right at the moment that, that Saul had him trapped and was ready to put his hands on him. Not one day before, not one day later, not five hours before, not five hours later, not 20 minutes before or 20 minutes later. But right at that exact moment, this messenger shows up. With his message that causes Saul to break off the chase and David gets to go free. What a coincidence. Or is it? Is this just a coincidence? Well, what even is a coincidence? Let's start by making sure we even understand what it is. I looked it up in the dictionary and here's what it said. It said the chance occurrence of things in such a way and at such a time so as to seem remarkable. You know, things that happen that you just shake your head and go, wow. That's amazing. 
But the key word in that definition is the word chance. The chance occurrence. You see, the word coincidence, folks, is a worldview word. It has a worldview attached to it. And it's important for you to understand that. Coincidence means if you didn't know better, you would swear that somebody had actually designed the events that you watched to go the way they did because the odds of things going the way they went are so remote that it's pretty hard to believe that those tumblers could have clicked into place the way they did without some guiding hand orchestrating it all very deliberately. But we know that there's no such guiding hand. We know that the universe just operates by random fate. So therefore, this was not planned at all. It just was coincidence. See, there's a worldview attached to this word. Now, it's interesting that for those of us who are Christians, the Bible offers us an entirely different worldview. The worldview of the Bible is a worldview that is not based on fate or luck or coincidence, but it's a worldview that is based on the existence of a sovereign God, a God who is in absolute control of His universe, and a God who cares about the affairs of your life and who causes the affairs of our lives as Christians to click into place in exact precision with His plan and His purpose for our lives. Let me show you one other verse of Scripture, may I? It's in Jeremiah chapter 29. And uh, if you would turn there with me, Jeremiah chapter 29, if you're using our copy of the Bible, it's page 558. Page 558, Jeremiah chapter 29, and let me show you what God has to say here about our circumstances and His involvement. Jeremiah 29, and look with me at verse 11 when you get there, if you would. Now, here's what the Bible says. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And what God is saying to us here is that God has a unique plan for every one of our lives as Christians. And not only does he have a unique plan, but God says that he is personally involved in helping that unique plan, causing that unique plan to come to fruition. He's not a sovereign God who sits off in the distance somewhere and just lets the world go wherever it wants to go. Just lets your life go wherever it wants to go. But God is a very hands-on God who is deeply involved in the details of our lives, deliberately combining them, deliberately orchestrating them to turn out to give us a future that prospers us, that gives us hope, not for our harm, but God has plans for good for our life. This is the worldview of the Bible. And may I say that if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ in a real and personal way as your personal Savior, that what Jesus Christ offers us is not just forgiveness of sin, not just eternal life, not just a place in heaven. He does offer us those things. But He offers us much more. He also offers us an all-powerful God who is interested in being involved in our lives, who wants to take a personal interest in our life, and more than just a personal interest, who is willing to personally direct the affairs of your life and my life to accomplish this kind of future that he's talking about here. You know, I've learned the hard way that running my own life is not a very promising endeavor. I mean, I look at every time I've ever decided to run my own life and it has been a disaster because I don't have the wisdom, I do not have the eternal perspective, and I don't have enough sense to know how to run my own life. 
And I admit that freely. I'm glad I've got a God who's willing to run my life because I don't know how to run my own life for my own good. I confess that openly. And if you're here and you're tired trying to run your life and you keep messing it up and you can't seem how to figure it out and make it work and you can't seem to get to a future and a hope and to have this kind of prosperity that God's talking about in your life, then I offer you another way to live. God offers you another way to live. It's a way to live called being a Christian where Jesus Christ is the center of your life and where God is orchestrating the events of your life. Something to think about. Well, friends, if the Bible's portrait of God is correct, then for us as Christians it has some incredible ramifications. And here's what they are. If the Bible's portrait of God as being hands-on on our life is correct, then that means that for us as Christians, there is no such thing as a coincidence. It means that for us as Christians, there is no such thing as luck or fate or karma. It means that as Christians, there is no such thing as an accident. Rather, it means that everything that enters our lives is the result of a sovereign, loving God executing His perfect plan for your life and my life as His children in Jesus Christ. Now you say, Lon, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. Come on, time. Wait a minute. You, you don't really believe, do you? That the God of the universe, I mean the one that's keeping galaxies from banging into each other and, you know, Saturn from hitting Neptune and all that. You don't really believe, do you, that that God is actually interested and involved in the everyday mundane stuff in your life, do you? I mean, the little details of your life. You think Almighty God of the universe has the time to be involved in the little stuff in your life? I mean, what an arrogant position to take. Well, I don't think it's arrogant. I think it's a very biblical position to take. And yes, I do believe that. You know, as many of you know, uh, Brenda and I, our family, we have a special needs little girl with some very severe disabilities. And uh, she's six now. And for many, a number of years now, Brenda's been coming to me and saying, this is not the right house for us, Lon. We need a different house. I mean, when we bought this house, it was wonderful. We didn't have a, a, a little girl with disabilities. But now that we do, this is not the right house for Jill. The older she gets, the more difficult it gets. We need to move. We need to find another house. And I have been saying, no, 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 no. And you know why? I had some reasons. Number one, we've lived in this house for 13 years. I've got some wonderful memories of raising my boys in this house. I don't want to leave this house. Number two, I don't want to list and show this thing. I mean, to have people, you know, to keep a house in showable condition when you've got a girl who can have seizures in the middle of the day and who knows what, to have people drive up in your driveway and call you on their cell phone and go, hi, we're in the driveway, can we come in and see your house now? I mean, we, I said, we cannot deal with this stress. Our family cannot handle this. And beside, think about this for a second, people who buy a house want to move in it. Well, if they move in it, where do you think we're going? We don't have any place else to go. We can't move into an apartment with Jill. I mean, this makes no... And we cannot do this. So she said to me, well, would you do me a favor? Would you pray about it? All right, all right, all right. I'll pray about it. So I began praying about it. But I prayed about it. I did. And she began showing me that Brenda was right. As usual, Brenda was right. And that we needed to move from this house. And I was like, but God, you know, we can't, we, the stress of showing this house will kill us. 
and, and we don't have any place to go. Where are we going to go if we sell this house? And I said, so God, you just got to take care of this. I, you know, I, I don't even know how to begin with this. So let me tell you what happened. We contacted a real estate agent who's a friend of ours, lives on our street, up the street, and we just began talking. We didn't list the house. We weren't about to list the house. We just began talking about our interests and what could we maybe get for our house. And anyway, she was out for a walk back in November in our neighborhood, and she saw another agent from her, from her office showing a house down at the other end of our neighborhood. So the next day, she talked to this agent in the office and said, hey, I saw you over there selling a house in the, the neighborhood. What are you doing? And she, the lady said, well, I've got a client who wants to buy a house in that neighborhood and she wants to buy a certain kind of house, which just happened to be the kind of house we have. And she wants to buy it up at the other end of the street, which just happens to be where we live. And so our agent, our friend said, she wasn't even our agent, she was just our friend. She said, well, you know, I know the Solomons live up there and they thought about selling their house. Would you like me to ask them if you could bring your client over for a one-time look-see at their house? The lady said, sure. So she asked us and we said, all right. So the lady came and looked at our house and then the lady came back and looked at our house and then the lady came back and looked at our house and then the lady bought our house. And, and, and here's the most wonderful part about the whole thing. The lady was not looking for a house to live in. She was looking for a house as a rental property, as an investment. So we went to settlement, came home, put the money in the bank and had dinner. And we're in a month-to-month rent where we can stay as long as we want while we look for another house. And our house is sold. And our agent, when she walked away, when we had signed the contract, she walked out of our house and she said, she said, i got to tell you, I have never seen anything happen like this in my whole life this was clearly divine and she is not a Christian trust me she's not (laughs) now let me ask you a question was this just a lucky coincidence well you can believe whatever you want it's up to you but I know better shoot my non-Christian real estate agent knows better And for you see, friends, for us as Christians, there are no such things as coincidences. And don't tell me God's not interested in the everyday details of our life. You know, as a Christian, if you don't believe that, you're missing one of the hugest blessings God has to offer you as one of His children, which is the awareness that God does care about your everyday affairs. And if you'll let Him have control of them, you won't believe what He'll do. You say, Lon, wait a minute, though. I understand what you're saying. But what about the bad stuff? I mean, any nincompoop can have a great view of God when you're selling your house without listing it. Anybody can have that view of God when they're like David, getting away when they're trapped. But I mean, what about the rotten stuff? What about those unlucky coincidences that come along in life? Are you telling me that as a Christian, I should believe that God sends unlucky coincidences into people's lives? That God sends rotten stuff into people's lives? And that are you telling me that I should thank God for them just like I ought to thank God for the good stuff because He's working out some perfect plan for my life? Is that what you're telling me? Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm telling you. Because that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. All things work together for good to those who love God. All things includes all things, right? Not just good things, not even just medium things, but even the rotten things. That God, the Bible says, takes them and mixes them all in a big old mixing bowl like a cake batter and puts them in the oven. And even though the individual ingredients that go into that cake may not be particularly particularly palatable, you may not particularly like them individually. Once God gets through with the whole mix and brings it out the oven, man, voila, you love the result. That's what the Bible's telling us. And that's why Joseph... 
You know, his brother's member sold him into slavery, went to jail for 13 years as an innocent man, and then he comes out and he's prime minister of Egypt. When his brothers met him for the first time after all those years, they were scared he was going to kill them. He said, no, I'm not going to kill you. He said, because I'll tell you what, you meant it for harm to me. I know that. But see, God was bigger than you guys. And God meant it for good. Look at me, I'm the prime minister of Egypt. You intended harm for me, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, but God intended it for good and used those very rotten circumstances to work out a plan for my life that is so good and so exciting that, you know what? I'm not going to kill you guys. I appreciate you selling me into slavery. Because look what God did with it. He said, well, Lon, you know, uh, that's easy for you to say. You sold your house without listing it. It's easy for you to say, well, you know what, I'll tell you something else. We, did, we this past week found a house to move into, a house we loved. I mean, there aren't that many houses that work for us. I just need to tell you that. We have two very different sets of needs. We have three teenagers and they have their sets of needs. And then we have this little girl with special needs. So we, there aren't very many houses that work for us. This house had a bedroom on the first floor, a bathroom on the first floor. I mean, it was a wonderful house. I was, I was so pumped about this house. And so we put in a contract on this house and I decided, you know, there aren't that many that come along that work for us in the neighborhoods where we, where we need to live to stay in our school district. So I'm not going to lose this house. So we wrote a contract for a thousand dollars over the asking price. No points to be paid by the seller. Non-contingent contract, flexible settlement date. I put down not $5,000, but $25,000 on the house. And we were scheduled to present this contract. It's an ultra-clean contract at 10.30 on Wednesday morning. Well, Wednesday morning, first thing in the morning, we had a little blip hit the graph, and we couldn't actually do it at 10.30. We had to wait till Wednesday afternoon. Well, by Wednesday afternoon, there were two other contracts that had come in on this house. So now we were one of three, not the only one, one of three. And when the contract was presented Wednesday evening, we lost the house to one of these other contracts. And the real estate agent who listed the house said to our agent, she said, you know, it's a shame that you didn't, you weren't able to present at 1030 like you planned. If you'd have brought this contract at 1030, you probably would have gotten this house. It was just an unlucky break, she said. He said, well, Lon, how did you feel about all this? Folks, I was severely depressed for three days. Waking up in the middle of the night thinking about what I could do differently to have gotten that house. You say, well, you, you look pretty good today. Are, are you on medication? Um, no, I'm not actually on medication. What I really have been on for the last three days is the Bible. That's what I've been on. I've been on 500 milligrams of biblical truth four times a day for the last three days trying to get over the disappointment of what happened here. And, and I ha I've had to keep reminding myself what God says about unlucky coincidences, about unlucky breaks, that God keeps saying, Lon, there is no such thing as an unlucky break. There is no such thing as an unlucky coincidence. But rather, I am running every single detail of your life, and if I wanted you to have that house at this time, the thing that came up at 10.30 wouldn't have come up at 10.30, and you'd have had the house. you got to trust me, son. See, when Joseph was sold into slavery, it looked like a disaster, but God had a better plan, didn't He? And when Moses was driven out into the desert at age 40 by Pharaoh, it looked like a disaster, but God had a better plan. And when Ruth's husband died and she became a, a widow, it looked like a horrible disaster, but God had a better plan. And when Esther's mom and dad died and she had to go live with Uncle Mordecai, 
It looked like a terrible disaster, but God had a better plan. And when Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, it looked like an awful disaster, but God had a better plan. And when Lazarus died for his sisters, they said, this is a horrible disaster, but hey, God had a better plan. And God has been saying to me, Lon, I know you're disappointed. And friends, I am disappointed. I still wake up in the morning thinking about how I could have gotten his house. But God says, Lon, you just got to trust me. I got a better plan. And, and you know, folks, I've had to remind myself God never leads us halfway. He never does that. And if we'll just trust Him to finish the project His way, He'll do it. I believe there'll come a day when I'm going to look back and never regret missing this house, at least at this moment in time. But it's hard right now. You say, well, Lon, you know, let's be honest with people, shall we, as Christians? Let's be honest now, you know. Sometimes, even as Christians, it isn't easy for us to accept disappointment. It isn't easy for us to accept a curveball that comes into our life. You're right. I told you, I'm still struggling with it. But this is where walking by faith comes into play, folks. This is where either God's telling us the truth or He isn't. And if He's telling us the truth, then we ought to be able to trust Him. I had a guy over my house yesterday. He's taking a loan application. I'm trying to pre-qualify for a loan. So this guy, not a Christian man, we're sitting there and he's taking the loan application. When we get all done, he's taking the whole thing. And I, so I'm telling him the story about how we lost this house. And I'm bemoaning the loss of this house. And at the very end, he looks at me very matter-of-factly and he says to me, well, Lon, he says, well, you're a religious man. He said, God's running the show, right? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, now it's time to, let's go. Um, I mean, imagine, this guy, you know, is just kind of like, pop, pop, Lon, what's wrong with you? You know, you got some non-Christian finance officer giving you biblical truth, and I'm like, oh yeah, okay. But this is right. And you know what, folks? There are a lot of curveballs that come along in life. Isn't it wonderful as a Christian to know who the real pitcher is? Isn't it wonderful to know that the pitcher is not random fate or unlucky karma, but the pitcher is a sovereign, loving God who even though he may throw you what looks like a curveball, his goal is not to strike you out. His goal is to make you a spiritual Hall of Famer. And if you'll just trust his pitch selection, believe me, he's got a pitch selection that is perfectly picked out for you. And if you'll trust him, you'll never be sorry that you let him pitch the ball to you. So... Are there any accidents for Christians? No. Are there any coincidences for Christians? No. Are we the victim of fate or karma? Absolutely not. Almighty God has a plan for us, a plan for good and not for evil, to give us a future and give us a hope. And you know what this means? And I'd like to close with this. It means that we ought to be able to approach even adversity in our life like Job did. Listen to what Job said. He said, shall we accept good from the Lord and never accept adversity? The Lord gives. And sometimes the Lord takes away. But either way, Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord, because I know He's got a plan. And the Bible says in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Friends, this is where God wants you and me to get to where we can take even the disappointments and the curveballs and say, God, blessed be your name. I know you got a plan. And may God change your life and help you get to this point because of what we've learned today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, as we've already said, when the curveballs of life come our way, the adversity that we don't want strikes our life, even as Christians, it's tough.
to deal with the disappointment and the heartache and the loss that we feel. But I want to pray that you would take the Word of God today, that you would change our worldview, that you would give us a biblical worldview, and that you would enable us, like Job, not to charge you with wrongdoing by questioning you and arguing with you and and being resentful and bitter against you. But God, give us that sweet surrender where we can say, well, sometimes the Lord gives and sometimes the Lord takes away. But either way, we can bless the name of God because we know He has a plan. And Lord Jesus, teach us that even though the butter and the oil and the flour and the eggs that go into a cake individually may not be all that attractive by themselves, that by the time it's all done and you're through mixing and cooking it, that the result is always a gorgeous cake. So Lord, for those of us right now who haven't seen the cake yet, help us to walk by faith. Help us to believe what you tell us. Change the way we respond to life, I pray God, because of being here today and hearing from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.